On Monday, we learned about a shooter in Nashville, Tennessee, who entered a private Christian school and killed three students and three adults using AR-15-style weapons. More and more, we're hearing about shootings involving these semi-automatic rifles. So, you know, the AR-15 plays such a big role in everyday life, you know, school shootings, mass shootings, these these horrible events. And we were kind of curious how we got here. How did this gun that was invented in the late 50s as a military gun, how did it become such a mainstream American consumer product? Todd Frankel is one of the reporters at The Post who has been looking into the AR-15 and its origin story. AR-15-style weapons are now the best-selling guns in America. But Todd says this popularity was surprising. The rifle, which was designed for the military, didn't seem well-suited for hunting, and it seemed too powerful for just home defense. It was intended to kill people, and quickly. 20 years ago, the gun industry itself was a little suspicious of the air fitting. They didn't allow it at its trade shows, um, or whether they did, they kept it behind, you know, a velvet ropes and only allowed law enforcement back there. You know, they didn't see a market for selling this to the consumers. Um, but now, if you walk into a gun shop, which I walked into lots of gun shops for the story, um, you know, it's on the wall. Everything has been changed by this gun, and we want to understand how we got to this moment. From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Arjun Singh. I'm your guest host today. It's Tuesday, March 28th. Today on the show, how the AR-15 became America's gun. There's no gun that's more central to uh, American everyday life, uh, whether you're a gun owner or not. Um, You know, one in 20 Americans own an AR-15. It is the best-selling rifle in America. You know, and it's not just... um, a gun, right, is a symbol. It's a, become a cultural symbol, a symbol of our polarization. The right sees it this way, the left sees it this way. It's it's the gun that so many people want to ban, and it's the gun that so many people say is central to their, you know, constitutional rights. It is one of those things you know it when you see it because it has this sort of militaristic, um, sort of threatening look to it, and that's part of the appeal. I mean, it is, um, you know, as one of the guys said in our story. Um, you know, it's like the Corvette, we make it look cool. There's there's sort of a cool look to it amongst folks who love these guns. And they look like what the military carries. Um, you know, if you think back to like, you know, Rambo movies when he has the AK-47, the AR-15 is the American answer to the AK-47. It's our version of, of that weapon. So was it always intended then to be sold to the mass public because it was designed to look cool? I mean, where does this gun kind of come from? It was, has its roots as, as a military gun, right? So the, um, Eugene Stoner, who's a famous gun designer, he uh, invented the gun in, in the late 1950s um, when he was working for this small gun maker um, named Armalite, which is based in Hollywood, California. The military was looking to replace its World War II-era rifles. And uh, he came up with this design that had less recoil. So it's actually very easy to fire, even though it, it sort of looks like a machine gun um, you might see in your mind. It is um, doesn't produce a lot of uh, kickback like a hunting rifle. You know, can you actually like injure your shoulder? People actually don't enjoy shooting those. He, he was trying to design a gun that the Marines um, or the Army infantry would carry into Vietnam, and they the the Pentagon loved this weapon. They this they praised it for its phenomenal lethality. And so at first, it was entirely about being a military weapon. How deadly is the AR-15? 
So the AR-15 uh, fires a small bullet, so what you would think perhaps is not that dangerous, but the small bullet moves much faster than a bullet that comes out of a handgun, for example. Um, and so when this bullet moves very fast and it hits a body, it then causes devastating wounds. So it just, you know, you know, just pulverizes bone. We talked to, you know, uh, trauma surgeons and medical examiners and looked at autopsy reports to really understand how different an injury being shot by an AR-15 is from being shot by a handgun. I think most folks would be surprised Although, you know, the trauma surgeons talk about how, you know, the worst case scenario really is being shot by an AR-15. So it was designed to be a military weapon, something that was intended to be carried into warfare, yet we see it all over the place in public life today. How does the AR-15 go from being a military weapon to one that's then marketed and bought by the general public? So it was slowly and then very quickly. Um, so at first, right, a lot of military weapons sort of cross over into the civilian sphere. They end up, you know, finding a, a at least a small niche market within the, you know, consumers who want to own what the military uses. And so uh, Armalite actually sold its patent to Colt, a very famous gunmaker, Colt. Um, and they started selling the AR-15 to the public in the 60s. Um, and then for like 20 or 30 uh, years, you know, they sold a maybe... Five, ten thousand 10,000 of AR-15s to the public. It just didn't have much big demand. Um, but it wasn't, you know, the phenomenon of the AR-15 becoming America's rifle, sort of becoming what is today the best-selling rifle in America, is a very recent phenomenon. What was the decision to sell this to the general public? Because it sounds like it wasn't necessarily very popular when it was first distributed. It was seen as a black rifle that was built for the military. Um, it's hunting uses were sort of limited. Uh, you know, a lot of hunters will tell you that, you know, it, it a high-speed small bullet is not great for shooting a deer, for example, because it would be very difficult to bring it down. You have to pick out the tiny little bullet. Um, it moves very fast. It'll tear up the meat. Um, so it's not a great hunting rifle. It can be modified to become a better hunting rifle. Uh, you know, hunting in itself has sort of fallen off um, in American popularity as well. So, you, you know, you, it's not as many hunters out there as well. So the, the gun makers really couldn't identify why a gun owner would want one of these. So the gun is released to the general public in the 60s. It has limited popularity, but then something must have changed. When does this shift start happening that we see the AR-15 becoming more popular? So from 94 to 2004, there was the uh, assault weapons ban, right? So guns like the AR-15, which you know, is classified as an assault weapon, although folks will get upset by the name, it was classified by the federal government as, as an assault weapon. Um, it was banned. You, you couldn't buy it and sell it in the U.S. in this 10-year period. Today, the bickering stops. The era of excuses is over. The law-abiding citizens of our country have made their voices heard. Let us roll up our sleeves to roll back this awful tide of violence and reduce crime in our country. We have the tools now. Let us get about the business of using them. And coming out of that, you know, um, you know, the gun companies, you know, still were not th that interested in the weapon. And it wasn't until 2006 when Smith & Wesson, which is one of the country's best-known gun makers, you know, introduced its very first AR-15. And that was a sort of a watershed moment where a big gun maker was willing to say, you know, put their stamp on it and say, all right, this is a weapon we want to sell. What was the rationale behind that? Because if this gun has been banned for such a long time, why then introduce an AR-15 style rifle? Yeah, I mean, they, they saw a market. Um, you know, they, they did these consumer surveys, which we cite in our stories, um, where they, you know, sort of said, you know, what are consumers interested in? What would they buy from Smith & Wesson? And one of the things that I think surprised them is that, you know, 
that what they call a tactical rifle. So there's many different names for an AR-15, the tactical rifle, black rifle, modern sporting rifle. Um, and they found that there was some consumer interest in it. And so they jumped in. Um, you know, at this point, this is in 2005, 2006, when they're making this decision, uh, gun sales are flat in the U.S. Um, they're sort of struggling to figure out what's next. They, the, the assault weapons ban had ended, but like gun companies weren't jumping at the chance to suddenly make these assault weapons. Um, but when Smith & Wesson takes that first step, it's sort of a, like at this moment where everything's about to change. And so they released this gun. It hasn't really seen a lot of public popularity. How does Smith & Wesson go about marketing this gun then? I mean, what do they say to people as the rationale to buy one of these? So in this period of 2005, 2006, um, you know, this is, you know, we're involved in Iraq and Afghanistan, the U.S. military is. And uh, every night on the news, there there's images of military men um, holding what are very similar weapons. You know, the M4, the M16 are basically cousins um, of the AR-15, which can be bought and sold by by the U.S. public. And, you know, there's a sudden, very much an interest in this. There's sort of this glorif- glorification of the U.S. military going on, um, you know, very rah-rah, you know, we're fighting these wars, and here comes along this weapon. And so the U.S. public has a chance to, again, use what the pros are using. So it's knowingly being marketed to people as a military-style weapon. And does that marketing work? Do you see an uptick of sales throughout the 2000s? It's it's slow at first, actually. You know, cultural events will drive that, um, like the uh, election of Barack Obama, you know, and then, you know, some of the bigger school shootings. But it is slowly gaining traction, and the gun makers are slowly, one by one, it's sort of interesting, one by one sort of deciding to jump into this market, right? And so when those big names decide to get behind the AR-15 for the first time, that that's a big signal, a big mar- market signal that this is mainstream. This is a mainstream weapon. Wait, just the election of Barack Obama inspires people to go buy guns? Why Why was that? Yeah, one of the interesting things is that sales of the AR-15 are very much driven by fear. It's, I think we call it a barometer of fear. Um, and the Obama's uh, election, in, you know, he's elected in 2007 and takes over in 2008. That rose all sorts of questions about, you know, new gun laws, you know, worries about gun laws. Democrats in, are controlling the White House. Oh, you know, they control the, the Congress too. Oh, well, you know, that means there are going to be new gun laws. And so gun makers and the gun lobby very much use that to their advantage of sort of uh, making folks worried that they weren't going to have AR-15s very long, so you better go and get one now. But was there any sort of soul-searching or questioning of of that kind of tactic uh, inside of the gun industry or the gun lobby? Yeah, you know, so the gun insiders that we talked to said that, um, you know, there wasn't room to do that within the industry. They didn't sort of um, countenance any sort of uh, criticism or, or self-doubt. Like, you either got with the program or you got kicked out. Um, there was this famous example um, of an outdoor writer who was basically banished and lost his industry jobs because he dared to question whether the AR-15 was a good hunting rifle. Um, you know, so they were, very much the industry was like, you know, either you're with the program or you're with not. There was not much sort of gray area on that topic. Well, I remember this time period because I was a high schooler. I was also a video gamer. I played a lot of video games. And what you had described as the AR-15, I'm pretty sure I saw in a handful of video games, things like Call of Duty. We got a hit on Hassan. We can't take him in Iran. He's not in Iran. Who do we send? Do we start to see a relationship between shooting and military video games like Call of Duty and the popularity of AR-15 around this time? We see a coincidence of timing. You know, whether, you know, one drew of the other, Alex Horton and um, Sean Boberg, uh, other reporters on this project as well, talked to um, some gamers and and folks who were directly influenced, who said, yes, this was direct influence. Now, you know, there's studies sort of saying, you know, 
how can you tease out one from the other? But there definitely was a growing surge of you know these games like Call of Duty, where folks were using weapons that were based on real guns, and you know that drove their interest in real world weapons as well. And so these things were sort of happening one after the other. So at one point, you know, um, a video game maker and a gun maker went out to the deserts um, outside Las Vegas to actually make sure, you know, that they got the most accurate sounds for the. For, for the video games. And, you know, they recorded the sound of a magazine being removed or the sound of, you know, the gun ejecting its shells. Um, You know, this was a coordinated effort between the gun maker and also the the video game maker to make sure that realism was um, represented um, in the video games. Because they saw it was good for both of them. You you get a more realistic game, and then you can also perhaps drive sales through marketing and sort of saying, look what was used in that game. That all came to a very abrupt end with the Newtown shooting in 2012. After the break, we talk about how the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown changed everything. How the AR-15 became a symbol of mass shootings on the left and freedom in the Second Amendment on the right. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Todd, tell me a little bit more about Newtown and take us back to what happened and how that changed the dialogue around the AR-15. Yeah, I think that for a lot of folks, that was the first time they might have heard the term AR-15 or heard about the gun or paid much attention to it. Um, You know, December 2012, a gunman walks into uh, Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut, um, and just fires away. A horrible scene, uh, 20 dead first graders, six dead adults. Um, and immediately that arrested the nation's attention um, and focused it on this weapon. And there was a lot of questions about, you know, how did he get this weapon? You know, this thing had 30-round clips, right? So each, it it could fire 30 rounds without, before it needed to be reloaded. Um, And this, the scene of the carnage in the weapon. And it was a moment that almost, you know, after we've had so many mass shootings since then, it's almost hard to imagine how much this one um, sort of stopped the nation, if not the world. Culturally, how how did people who were proponents of carrying AR-15s, whether it's the NRA or gun manufacturers, talk about the AR-15 after Newtown? After Newtown was a very sensitive moment, and I think there was a lot of immediately a push for resurrecting the assault weapons ban, which again had elapsed only eight years earlier. So it was still, you know, on the menu of at least options for gun control. We can't tolerate this anymore. These tragedies must end. And to end them, we must change. Um, and the NRA, you know, was on its heels and sort of worried about what it was going to do. And then Wayne LaPierre, the, the head of the NRA, um, came out with his sort of famous statement about... The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And that sort of, is sort of right there sort of showed you the two sides of the debate. Todd, can you help me understand something, which is how does a gun that became synonymous with a school shooting simultaneously seem to become a rallying call for 
aggressive supporters of the Second Amendment. Are these two things running in parallel, or was there a cultural shift that had to happen? I think gun rights supporters um, don't see the gun as being to blame. And I think we just hear that again, right? You know, you blame the the person, not the, the gun. You know, the gun didn't do anything. It was just being used improperly. And when the threat of it being banned um, became more real post-Newtown, you know, the, in 2013, you know, Congress actually voted on an assault weapons ban. It failed, um, but they voted. Um, you know, the, the gun industry took that as a moment to really sort of solidify all gun rights as being represented by the AR-15. And then, you know, the decades since then, it's only become, you know, those images even starker where, you know, people now refer to it as, you know, the American musket, the modern-day musket, you know, which is sort of a stunning way to think about the AR-15, that it's, you know, essential to American identity as the musket. So the sentiment is that it, it's sort of a symbol of, of freedom or freedom to bear arms. Is this really driven by grassroots campaign or who is kind of pushing this idea and, you know, making these kinds of messaging? I think there are true believers. Uh, definitely, I spoke to lots of gun owners who are true believers in this, but it is definitely being pushed also by, you know, the NRA, other gun rights groups. There's actually gun rights groups that are much more extreme than the NRA in terms of like how... Um, little they believe there should be any regulation of it, of firearms at all. Um, but also the industry itself, they don't want to lose a, a, you know, a market um, that has been very lucrative for them as well. But there are definitely gun owners who, you know, I spoke to, and it was actually very interesting to speak to them about how they see the AR-15 as representing something that is a constitutional right, as much as the freedom of speech or the you know, freedom of, um, of religion. They see the AR-15 as representing something so central to their American identity. But again, that was not something that was widely thought of, you know, 20 years ago. It's been really a, a recent phenomenon. Yeah, and you mentioned that for gun manufacturers, it's a lucrative market. In terms of dollars, how much does the gun manufacturing industry stand to lose if, say, AR-15 or an AR-15-style rifles were to be banned? Yeah, so we did an analysis of gun industry um, data, and, you know, just since 2012, so in about a decade, they've um, made a over $11 billion um, from the sales of AR-15s and their similar weapons, um, which is a, a stunning amount of money um, in, in a fairly short amount of time. And it's certainly, certainly they, something they would not give up easily. You know, your story came out on Monday, the same day that there was another mass shooting. I'm really wondering, Todd, how, how do you think about this reporting you've done in the light of that news? Unfortunately, there are so many shootings in the U.S. Um, that it was pure coincidence because we just have school shootings. It's, it's, it's an American fact of life. It's something that we've become inured to, to a certain extent, because it happens so frequently. Um, you know, the, our stories ran in the morning, um, and that uh, afternoon's, you know, late morning, we learned about what had happened in Nashville, and it was stunning, but not surprising. Well, Todd, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us today. It was fascinating. Thank you. Todd Frankel is an enterprise reporter at The Post. We'll include links to his story and The Post's other reporting on the AR-15 in our show notes and at postreports.com. The Washington Post stories on the AR-15 published at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, hours before a mass shooting began in Nashville. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnik with help from Sabby Robinson. 
It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Maggie Penman. If you want to show your support for the show and this kind of journalism, please subscribe to The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.